Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. But I promise all sorts of weirdness. So sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's dark enigma, well, today I'm doing something that I haven't done in a while. Shower. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're doing a two for Tuesday, mostly because they're kind of short and sweet stories. So, yeah, I kind of put them together. Anyways, with that being said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours. So choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say vampire, that's going to be a single shot. And every time I say children, that's going to be a double shot. I know that is not a good combination, but I promise it'll make sense when you hear it. All right, now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump head first into today's dark enigma. So don your witchy poo hat. And your kilt. (laughs) That's a good combination, too. All right, and let's dive into our double offering today of case number one, the bizarre case of the Witch of Baldoon, and case number two, the strange tale of the Gorbals Vampire of Glasgow. Truly ambitious. Yep, three of my favorite things. Witches, vampires, and Scotland. That's right. (laughs) All right. So let's get going. We're going to be starting off with the witchy poos. (laughs) All right. I got to calm down. Sorry, I've had a little bit too much already. It's been a day. Although it is a pleasant expanse of rolling fields today, 
the area of what is now known as Wallaceburg, Ontario, was once a wild, untamed land, first settled in 1804 by the brave souls who risked their lives to carve out an existence along the rugged wilderness of the Sny River. The small settlement that would become Wallaceburg was called the Baldoon Settlement. Tucked away in this forbidding realm of harsh winters and perched on the edge of unexplored wilds as far as the eye could see. It was to this fierce place that a farmer named John McDonald, don't sing the song, <laughs> and his family came in 1829 from Scotland. You see why they tied together? Because they're both from Scotland. Yeah to try and make a new life for themselves. But their story would go on to become one of the greatest tales of the paranormal in Ontario history. Their dream literally turned to a nightmare. I'm just, seriously, I gotta sing this song. Oh, McDonald had a farm. Okay, I'm good. Thank you for letting me get that out. I hope you had to do that too, so. Get it out while you can. Okay. Almost as soon as the McDonald's moved into their quaint two-storied frame house, they allegedly were approached by an eccentric family that lived nearby, consisting of a creepy old woman and her two sons and daughter, who offered to buy the property on several occasions, but the McDonald's refused, and this was when they began to experience paranormal activity. It started off light with noises when no one was there, objects moved or misplaced, and the sound of disembodied footsteps. But this all began to accelerate in intensity. Screaming and wailing were heard at night. Objects began flying off of shelves. Lead bullets or stones would be thrown at people by unseen hands or come shattering through windows sometimes described as boring holes in the glass as though shot from a gun, but would drop quietly and harmlessly to the floor. And fires began to break out around the property for inexplicable reasons. John's son, Neil MacDonald, would later write of some of this activity, and I quote, The dishes of water would rise of their own accord from the table. The tongs and shovel bang against each other on the hearth. The chairs and tables fall over with a loud crash, and even that sober domestic creature, the kettle on the hearth, would toss off its lid, tip over on one side, and suddenly, as if seized by unseen hands, dash itself in a paroxysm of fury on the floor. An Indian knife with a blade ten inches long was violently dashed against the window frame, and its blade stuck fast in the casement. End quote. This would all graduate to more and more dangerous activity as time went on. Livestock and farm animals seemed to drop dead for no reason. The family's dog was attacked by some unseen entity and ran off to never return. Objects were thrown with increasing ferocity and obvious intent to harm, and the children were targeted more often, even the youngest of them. On one occasion, a red-hot rock supposedly appeared under the family's infant child to cause it to scream out, 
Yet when they threw this stone out the window, it came sailing back in a moment later and threatened to start a fire. Another time, the whole house was said to have been raised right off its foundations, only to drop back down again. Many of these strange phenomena were supposedly witnessed by family, friends, and relatives, and it would all reach a crescendo when one of the mysterious fires raised the entire house to the ground, fortunately not taking any lives with it. Alive but shaken, the McDonald's moved next door to the home of John's father, where the activity would start up again right where it left off. The family experimented a little, marking some of the stones that came crashing into the house from the windows and then throwing them into the nearby river. Yet the same stones with the same markings would be thrown back, dripping wet, as if someone had plucked them from the cold water. Authorities were notified by the desperate family, and even these men of the law became targets for these strange forces. One Captain Bennett came to the property to have the bullets of his rifle vanish, only to be thrown back at him, and finally for his gun to suddenly explode in his hands. And another lawman spent most of his time at the property putting out fires. Even a priest was brought in to try and perform an exorcism, and a local shaman was approached as well, but this did nothing to help. In the meantime, the McDonald's took to living in a makeshift tent, outside rather than risk endangering those around them. Out of sheer desperation, the family then purportedly trekked through the wilderness to seek the advice of a girl of 15 years of age, who lived there as a hermit with her father, and who was said to have vast psychic powers. The mysterious girl told them that they were being cursed by a witch who happened to be the very old lady who lived next door, the one who had wanted to buy their land in the first place. The McDonald's were told to look at their flock of geese and that among them they would find a stray goose with a black head and a single black feather in each wing. This bird, it was said, was the origin of their woes and that they should shoot it with a silver bullet which would release them from the nefarious curse. The McDonald's made their journey home and soon found that there indeed was such a goose in their flock, just as described. John went about crafting a single silver bullet. Unfortunately, his shot was not dead on, merely injuring the animal, which fled off toward the old woman's house. The curious farmer chased after the wounded bird, and as he approached the house, he saw that old witch sitting upon her porch nursing a wounded arm and shrinking back from the farmer as he approached in obvious fear. The tale goes that the woman's health then deteriorated rapidly, the silver undoing her magic and sickening her until she was no more, and all paranormal activity supposedly ceased as soon as she let out her last gasp. It's all a truly spectacular, spellbinding account of adventure, intrigue, and supernatural horror, featuring a colorful cast of shape-shifting witches, a besieged family, psychics, and magical geese. And to this day, the story remains popular in Canada, where it is mostly treated as a genuine haunting. However, there have been quite a lot of skepticism aimed at the account as well. One of the problems is that it has been told so many times by so many people, all with their own little variations and versions, that it's very difficult to know 
what is real and what is not. The most official source is Neil MacDonald's book on the matter, which was serialized in the Wallaceburg newspaper in 1871 and published in print in 1905, long after the actual event supposedly happened. The book is very detailed and fleshed out with 26 eyewitness accounts from the McDonald home, but the problem is that Neil would have been a very young child at the time of the events, so how much veracity can we really give in to it? It has been strongly suspected that at least large portions of the tale and certain story elements were completely fabricated by Neil, based on the folklore and older accounts of strange phenomena in the region, and that he made most of it up if not all of it. Is that what this all is? Tall tales, folklore, and a work of complete fiction? Is there anything to it at all? Whatever the answers may be, the case of the Witch of Baldoon has gone on to become a pervasive legend and one of the great Canadian ghost stories. Whew, yes, I finally did a story on Canada. Stop sending me emails about it. Just saying. You guys got to get some better stories is all I'm going to say. You guys have some lovely Mounties, but they're not paranormal. So I'm just going to say it. All right. That brings us to our double feature, double creature. The strange tale of the Gorbals vampire of Glasgow. I told you these two came together. Scotland. I'm just saying. I found a way to tie them together. It's okay. You'll live. It's, it's good. Anyways. Located just next to the city center of Glasgow, Scotland, is an area known as the Gorbals, once a small village right there on the street, but which in later years came to be known as an overcrowded slum. In the 1950s, this was a grimy, smoggy place that had been heavily impacted by pollution, caused by its proximity to all of the factories that had been churning out weapons and steel for World War II, and living conditions at the time were rough, with overstuffed, filthy housing projects, with flimsy construction, poor sewage facilities, and more often than not, no running water. So, not a great place to be. It was in this climate of stench, squalor, and poverty, in a city still reeling from the war, and wreathed in the smoke of the nearby steelworks, that a new threat would creep out from the rat-infested gloom to terrorize the populace and spawn a tale of darkened, haunted cemeteries, a spooky town, and metal-toothed vampires. All right, I'm just going to say right there, that metal-toothed vampires is one of the things on my list of crap I'm scared of. I'm just saying. Okay. In September of 1954... Rumors began to circulate around the area that two children had gone missing to never be seen again. But there were some who would claim that they knew what had taken them and that it lived in a large cemetery just outside of the city limits that was called the Gorbals Necropolis, or by its more sinister nickname, the City of the Dead. According to these stories, there was a vampire living in the cemetery and a rather terrifying one at that. Standing seven feet tall, with glowing eyes, and most spectacularly sharpened fangs made of iron. Many children began reporting that they had seen the ghoul for themselves, and soon there were numerous sightings of what would be called the Gorbals Vampire, lurking in the necropolis, shambling about to feed on the unsuspecting. 
At the time, authorities tried to calm the populace by stating that there had been no boys reported missing at all, and that there was no fiendish vampire stalking the cemetery, and the school headmaster denounced it all as nonsense. But by that time, the rumor had taken on a life of its own, as these things often do, especially among the area's children and young adults. The rumors flew, whispered amongst the believers, until most kids had either seen the vampire themselves or knew someone who had. And the Gorbel's vampire was even said to have an evil witch as its companion. See, I'm tying these together. Witch, Scotland. Witch is Scotland. I'm there. Rather amazingly, rather than just cowering in their rooms in fear and hiding from the vile creature, the children of the Gorbals began to formulate a plan to actually hunt it down and kill it. To this end, they began sending messages and notes to their friends and friends of friends, amassing a group of would-be vampire hunters who went about fashioning weapons such as stakes and preparing to actually get together to storm the necropolis to launch a full-scale assault on the insidious vampire they were sure they would find there. I'm just saying, this story's not sounding really good. <laughs> I feel somebody innocent's going to get it staked. I'm just saying. There could be a nice vampire that you stake by mistake. Anyways. On September 23rd, 1954, hundreds of kids aged 4 to 14 with their makeshift weapons, knives, and even dogs converged on the cemetery, and the scene turned into absolute chaos. The children poured into the necropolis, roaming about the graves or perching up on the cemetery walls on the lookout for the beast. One witness to it all, a Ronnie Sanderson, says he was eight years old at the time and describes the storming of Gorbal's City of the Dead as thus, and I quote, It all started in the playground. The word was there was a vampire and everyone was going to head out there after school. At three o'clock, the school emptied and everyone made a beeline for it. We sat there for ages on the wall, waiting and waiting. I wouldn't go in because it was a bit scary for me, I think somebody saw someone wandering about and the cry went up. There's the vampire! That was it. That was the word to get off that wall quick and get away from it. I just remember scampering home to my mother. What's the matter with you? I've seen a vampire. And I got a clout round the ear for my trouble. I didn't really know what a vampire was. End quote. Making it all even eerier was that the nearby steelworks was belching flames which cast a red hue onto the fog and produced an unnerving atmosphere and flickering shadows that danced about, as well as producing relentless cacophony of clanking metal. It all further cranked up the tension and terror, and when police showed up to the bizarre scene of this mob of armed children hunting down a vampire, they were unable to get them to leave. In fact, many of the children even pleaded with the police to help them find the nefarious vampire. And it was all surreal, to say the very least. It was only when it began to pour down rain that the crowd would disperse. But even then, the vampire hunters returned to the cemetery for the next two nights, never finding their quarry. The bizarre incident swept through the news at the time, until before long it was making headlines all over the world. Of course, not many adults believed that 
there was an actual vampire with teeth made of iron in the Gorbel's necropolis. But what had caused these kids to just suddenly lose their minds and gang up to storm this cemetery? One of the main ideas is that these kids had been swept up in a sort of mass hysteria, fueled by popular American horror comics of the day, such as Tales from the Crypt, The Vault of Horror, and in particular, Dark Mysteries, which actually featured one issue that had an actual vampire with iron teeth. Sounds to me like somebody was playing the game of telephone, and it got out of hand. We all played that game, you know, where you... Where you tell somebody a secret and it moves on to someone else and by the time it comes back to you it's a completely different story yeah at the time parents and city officials were so certain that these lurid and terrifying comic books were to blame that they went about trying to ban the sale of american comics and in 1955 the children and young persons harmful publications act was passed which limits how graphic reading material for youngsters can be and is still in effect to this very day while this seems to be the easiest explanation and no doubt such comic stories likely had some part to play in the mayhem some of the vampire hunters would later insist that they had never even seen an american comic book it has also been suggested that a large part of it could have to do with the incredible potency of a child's imagination and their ability to make the images in their head real in a sense. These kids had grown up hanging out in the spooky old necropolis, one of the only slashes of green and open space in the entire city, but also a gloomy place of death pervaded by the stench of sulfur and perpetually cloaked in smoke and fog, all overlaid with a chorus of banging metal and flames spewing out of the steelworks. This might have caused the kids to sort of create their own legend in their minds, a sort of urban myth born from dark fantasies that in their imaginations became all too real for them. Fortean researcher Jeff Holder has explained his thoughts on this, saying as thus, and I quote, Perhaps young children live in a world of magical realism, where strange and wondrous things can intrude into the ordinary everyday world without causing cognitive dissonance. Bizarre events can be seen as normal as children have not yet learned the common sense limits of normality. Groups of children swept up by an intoxicating and fluid wave of exciting rumors gathered together and engaged in a communal activity to hunt down the monster. It was enjoyable, but they weren't playing at monster hunting. They were monster hunting, end quote. There are other sources that could have influenced the children's imaginations as well, such as scary folklore and legends, or even the Bible. And this perhaps all mixed together with the ominous atmosphere of the necropolis to create a perfect recipe for mass hysteria. In the end... It's probably a combination of things that led to the creation of the Gorbel's Vampire, which author David Castleton explains quite well, saying, and I quote, The Gorbel's Vampire seems to have arisen from a mix of ingredients, a spooky and much-frequented cemetery, the stresses caused by overcrowding, poverty, and industrial pollution, and earlier legends of similar demons which could easily be conjured back to life in such surroundings, end quote. Whatever the underlying cause for it all was, 
Interestingly, some of the witnesses of the vampire continued to insist it was real and that they had actually seen it long after this all blew over. And there were kids who said that they had known the children who had gone missing to be presumed devoured by this thing. In the end, it is certainly a bizarre case with the idea of a mob of armed kids refusing to back down and storm a cemetery, looking to confront an iron-toothed vampire, a fascinating and outlandish tale to be sure. Although, pictured in my head, I could totally see it. However, it all came about. The tale of the Gorbals vampire is an intriguing look into myths, monsters, and the human mind and its remarkable historical oddity. And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of our episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and tell me what you think about our double shot today. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, or you're bored and you need somebody to talk to, drop me a line. As you know, you can reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And I do reply to every single email. But on that note, my darlings, it's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it. Don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. (laughs) This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.